once again to the cold dive. I'm Lucas, aka Carter Kirby, and this is the place for musings on technology, cryptography, and Genmaitra tea. Today I'd like to talk a bit about threshold signatures, which is something I've been diving into again recently, and something I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, about a year ago. So I guess let's, you know, dive straight into the topic. What are threshold signatures? So the basic idea is that you have a group of people and they want to sign a message together. So they want to have some sort of scheme where they have some shared identity for the group and no single person should be able to sign on behalf of the group, but if enough people come together, then they can produce a signature. And then other people can check that, you know, you know, this group produced a signature. And it's usually a threshold in the sense that not the entire group needs to be present, only a quorum, so maybe a majority of people need to be present. But usually you, you can set arbitrary thresholds. So maybe you have three people and I say I want two to be there for, for a signature to happen. Or maybe I have five and I say it's three, but you could also do 199. Any other logical combination as long as the quorum is you know smaller than the group size it would make sense to have a threshold of 100 people when there's only three possible signers because then you just wouldn't be able to sign ever so i get one the simplest way to do this would be to simply have all of this work done by the verifiers of signatures so if the verifier is sort of aware of the group and the threshold then one way to sign a message would be sort of each person signs a message and you have a sort of collection of signatures as your group signature. And then a verifier would check that the number of signatures is greater than the threshold and that sort of each signature is individually valid for that member of the group. What's at a disadvantage with this setup for a privacy perspective is that you know who signed in this particular instance, because you can see, you know, oh, member A, B, and C of this group signed. Uh, you might want something a bit more opaque. And also sort of this system requires the verifier to be aware of the, the group and of the threshold. So it's most definitely not backwards compatible with existing sort of systems. So usually when you talk about threshold signatures, what you sort of mean is a way of producing a signature which is completely backwards compatible. So let's say you have an existing signature scheme, sort of a thresholdized version of that would be a way of splitting up the secret key, which is normally used for, for signing among the parties so that no single person knows the secret key, because otherwise they'd just be able to produce signatures on their own and that'd be bad. Everybody in this group knows the shared public key and somehow you have some protocol which a group of participants can run together to use their shares to create a signature on some message without anybody else learning their shares. Because one thing you, you could sort of do is that people come together, use their shares of the secret to reconstruct the original secret, then create a signature sort of the normal way. The issue with that is that once you've created one signature, then you can sign any other message. And that's sort of something you don't want to happen. You want it so that at any point in time, people have to collaborate together 
to create a signature. And so the primary use case of this is sort of reducing trust assumptions for like applications which would require a signature. So let's say I'm doing like code signing or something like that. So I'm signing the release of my app that's supposed to be secure. And I don't want my key to get compromised because then people could create bad releases of the app and you know install malicious software on people's devices, thinking that I'm the me, the software developer is the one actually signing off on those bad changes. So one concern would be if I just have the signing key sitting around somewhere, then you just have to comp compromise that single machine, then compromise the signing key. So I might want to sort of distribute this among multiple machines so that you need to compromise a large subset of the machines in order to be able to sign anything. And the issue is that I have to sort of be compatible with the existing signature format and scheme that the App Store or whatever uses. So a threshold signature scheme would be useful here because I could have the existing sort of App Store compliance setup, but distribute the, the secret key among multiple machines and still comply with the old signature format, but with better sort of trust guarantees. Because then basically as long as a, a large number of the machines aren't compromised, you're okay. So if just a few machines are compromised, that's not enough to be able to sign messages. And sort of a, a similar application to that is, is for cryptocurrencies. So they're often the way payments work is that to sort of authorize a transfer of funds, you need to create a signature for some transaction. And one way to make sort of, you know, some funds more secure is you make it so that multiple people need to collaborate together to sign. So whenever you have some sort of signature needs to take place, you make sure that the secret that you need to create that signature is distributed among several parties such that they have to collaborate actively to create new signatures. And so that prevents signatures from being created for transactions and spending funds unless, you know, a lot of people are compromised and you have enough people compromised to create a, a quorum. So one particular configuration that's kind of interesting is a lot of the way custody works now is with like sort of centralized custodians. So you have exchanges like uh, Coinbase, FTX, stuff like that, where you trust them entirely with your holdings. So basically they hold assets in your name and you trust them to sort of not have them stolen and to actually provide you access to those assets. And sort of an alternative way to do it would be that you just have self-custody entirely. So you control all of the keys and whatnot. So the issue with that is that maybe, you know, the security of an individual user is not going to be as good as that of like a company that invests in security resources and, you know, actively monitors and things and stuff like that. Whereas if it's just on someone's phone and not even sort of in an, in an enclave, you just have some keys and a pile on your phone, they may not be the most secure thing. And so with threshold signatures, you could sort of get like a best of both worlds in some sense, because what you could do is you could uh, you could have sort of your seed phrase, which is like sort of the, the cooled aspect of your wallet. You have that sort of written down somewhere, you know, not accessible on the Internet. And then from that, you derive some more, you know, hotkeys, which you actually use. And those are the ones that sort of hold, hold you know, actively used accounts or whatever. And for those, you make sure that 
your phone doesn't store the entire secret, but only a share of it. And then your central custodian has like the other share. And anytime you want to create a transaction, you and the custodian have to collaborate using your shares to create a signature. And so then to forge a signature in this model, well, either you have to compromise sort of the cold aspect of your wallet, but you know, you, you take the assumption that that's not gonna happen because you sort of have your seed phrase, you know, under lock and key and not accessible <laughs> by the internet. So it's very unlikely to get, to get stolen. Your phone might get compromised, but you're sort of under assumption that, well, even if your phone get com gets compromised, it's unlikely that, you know, this big company will be compromised. Although, you know, faith in big company security is perhaps given too lightly these days. And sort of conversely, even if the, you know, the big company gets popped, well, you know, maybe your phone, individual phone didn't. And also you never, at no point do you trust the company with sort of full custody of your assets. They can only ever control a single share. So you don't need to trust them at all, really. They could get that share out and they still wouldn't be able to sign transactions on your behalf without your collaboration. Now there's sort of flow in this model, if you think about it, in that often the company will also control the app that you use to sort of do this fancy cryptography stuff for threshold signatures. In that case, like the, the threat model becomes a bit more muddled because you sort of need to trust them to write an app that's correct. Now, in theory, like the way this would work is that you would, they would, you know, sign the app and you would sort of read the code and you trust that it compiles to that thing. Well, not you trust, you, you verify that it compiles to the binary that you get and you sort of audit the code yourself and you say, oh yeah, it's not doing bad stuff uh, with my share. Cause like you could have like a lot of code that says, okay, I'm gonna, you know, send uh, Bob's share to the server and lock it. And now I learn his share. Um, in practice, you're not gonna audit it yourself. So as long as like, you know, the app store has signed releases, you have some maybe independent researchers saying, oh, there's like some fishy stuff in this new release from this exchange of their wallet app. Uh, be careful. Yeah, that's like the idea. Often like in practice, like something that would probably go like unseen for a while when inserted a backdoor, but it'd be, there's like also like little economic incentive to, to do that because as soon as it's found out, it, you know, you'd think people would lose complete confidence in the company. But as I, as I was saying that sentence, I reminded of companies like Equifax and stuff, which had like big hacks and then, you know, I'll around. <laughs> so, well, I guess a final sort of use case I'll mention now is that of sort of like, as part of a protocol, you might like want a group of participants to sign off on something collectively. So also in the context of blockchains, this shows up. So if you have like a set of validators, maybe you're, you want them to all sign off on a new block or something. And so you want it to be, and here like the motivations are a bit different, which you want is sort of like the consent of like a quorum of validators, that, that's one aspect you want. Uh, but it's, there's like, uh, the reason you want to emulate like a traditional signature is just to make verification easier. Because like you could do the, the software approach and that you don't need like backwards compatibility with like some other thing. If you're doing like bridging, then that might be, well, actually, I guess we'll just talk about bridging later. Uh, so anyhow, you have a set of validators and like this is part of a new protocol. So you can do whatever signature format you want. Uh, but if you have just a single signature to verify, that's much easier. Of course, it would take more work on the verify on the validator end to create this threshold signature because you have to do this sort of communication and protocol thingy. 
uh, and that's sort of slower than just each person signing, but it is faster to verify. And often what you end up using is not really a threshold signature per se. Instead you use sort of like what I call an aggregatable signature. So I'm thinking of BLS signatures. So with the BLS signature, the way it works is like when you have multiple signatures, if you do things sort of correctly and you're careful, you can sort of merge them together into one, like even if you don't know any of the secrets. Whereas with a sort of a usual threshold signature protocol, you sort of use an existing signature scheme as your target, but then you have to run sort of this interactive protocol among the participants where they have to you know, send messages to each other. As with BLS, it's sort of non-interactive. Everybody sort of signs their stuff and then you sort of aggregate them together in a way. And BLS is the advantage that you can sort of aggregate, you know, an arbitrary number of signatures into a sort of a single signature. And so that's usually what's used in this like validator setting. So each validator signs it, you aggregate the signatures, and then that gives you that thing. You can also do a threshold aggregation uh, so that, you know, you can sort of have a single public key for all of the validators. And as soon as a quorum of signatures have arrived, you can sort of recombine them into a single signature for the group. I think it's something sort of related to validators is often you have sort of the use of sort of like a validator set to sort of approve a, a transition and like a, a bridge. So you want to bridge one cryptocurrency to another. And so there's sort of useful to have like backwards compatibility of a signature format because then you can make it so that like the approval of sort of like a transfer out of the bridge by a set of validators is just like a normal transaction. So that's like an interesting property you can have. So I think uh, some bridges have used, you know, threshold signatures for ECDSA, which is like a common signature algorithm for, for cryptocurrencies to achieve this. So like the exit, like movement of, of funds on the bridge approved by a set of validators is just done by creating a, a normal transaction. So that's sort of an interesting application too. And I guess the segues us, because we've already mentioned sort of BLS, which is sort of, a, different the kind of threshold signatures that I, I have in mind. And so, you know, what are the common signature schemes which get used in the threshold setting? Well, so I mentioned, you know, BLS. So BLS is, you can sort of think of it as a threshold signature, but it has like this neat property of being non-interactive. So everybody signs and you can aggregate stuff together. That's sort of an exceptional case. Usually the way it works is that, as I mentioned briefly, you have your existing signature scheme and you have to run this interactive protocol to create signatures. And prior to that, you sort of somehow share the secret in a special way. So one scheme, which is sort of, I guess, growing in popularity, relatively speaking, is sort of Schnorr signatures. So I, that's sort of one scheme, which is actually kind of like older than ECDSA, but because of patent reasons, it sort of wasn't used that much. But then with the advent of things like ed25519, it became more popular. So basically you have store signatures, that's like one thing usually using elliptic curves. Then you have ECDSA signatures also using elliptic curves. And in blockchains, it turns out that that ended up being more prominent uh, because sort of it was kind of in use a lot more than store signatures at the time that Bitcoin came around and sort of a lot of other chains kind of copied it either sort of just like, well, sort of copying a, a signature scheme is sort of a, a good way of avoiding new cryptographic assumptions, you know? Like, I use the same curve and the same signature scheme, so I'm not, you know, rolling my own crypto. I'm not uh, doing any cowboy stuff. 
And then also eventually other chains had to copy it out of necessity because they wanted some kind of compatibility with other stuff. And so what that means is that there's a lot of ECDSA floating around. And I guess I just come out and say that I think ECDSA is just objectively worse than Schnorr. It's objectively it's harder to work with. Uh, there's some weird oddities with like the design of it. Um, but from an objective standpoint, it is much harder to make threshold signatures for ECDSA than Schnorr. Um, I don't think I'll get to like the details of that in this episode because I think I, I want to do an entire episode just on threshold ECDSA because there's a bunch of like stuff to talk about and uh, I'm sort of kind of working on it right now. Uh, I'm working on improving threshold ECDSA protocols basically. Um, but to touch on it briefly, uh, basically with Schnorr signatures, it has this sort of nice linear structure. So I, I almost want to like just try and explain the formula uh, via audio. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to recommend a blog post of mine on Schnorr signatures, and I'm going to link to that. But if you read that blog post or sort of take my word for it, you sort of realize that there's this nice linear structure that signatures have. So basically, if I have my secret key, which is a, a scalar in, in the, the field, if you have a linear sharing, so I do, you know, the secret is split into shares such that A plus B plus C equals the secret key. So A, B, and C are the shares. If you have this linear sharing, it's sort of easy to implement uh, the signature scheme because every operation is sort of linear with respect to the secret. So like any time I do a sort of operation on the secret, it's sort of, if the secret were shared linearly, I could do each operation sort of on each share and then combine them together by addition. And this property is very nice because essentially you get a protocol out of that where each person sort of does their operation on their share. They sh they show off the result, people add them together and they sort of continue round by round like this. And what's trickier with ECDSA is that at some point you need to multiply two secrets together. And multiplying two secrets together is hard, relatively speaking. Because if you just have linear operations, you can do that sort of locally, but to multiply, it's sort of a non-local. Because like, I mean, if you, you should have to look at the math to realize why. But basically, like if I do A plus B times C plus D, it's AC plus AD. Like you have this crisscrossing, like you have a bunch of cross terms. And so each cross term is sort of like this annoying little nugget where you need to sort of interact with someone somehow. Like it's not local at all. Whereas it like, if I have, you know, A plus B as one share of some secret and C plus D is another sharing of some secret. Now add those together. Well then, you know, I can just add each individual share that gives me a share of the addition. The other person adds each individual share and then we can sort of share the result. Whereas the multiplication, we sort of need to, there's some deeper interaction that needs to happen in essence. It's probably a bad explanation, <laughs> but I'm, I'm reaching on the limits of the audio format in terms of explaining math. So I, I guess uh, I'll probably get into detail on like that in a further episode because with Threshold ECDSA, there's a lot to say. But I guess I'd like to talk about, about some of like the other operational aspects of Threshold Signatures. So I, I've talked about like signing as a protocol a few times already. But often there's usually a few other things you want. So I, I talked about like creating shares of a secret key vaguely at first, and then I mentioned kind of linear sharing. Um, 
And the thing with linear sharing is that it doesn't really convey like how you get the threshold. Because linear sharing, the idea is like each person has one share and you need everybody together to combine them. With threshold sharing, you can somehow like only have a subset of people. And how do you how do you get this to work? Well, uh, polynomials. Like many things in cryptography, you use polynomials. So so the basic idea is that if you have a polynomial with three coefficients, or let's say but let's say three for an, as an example. If you had three of coefficients, so a plus bx plus cx squared, then you only need to learn the value of the polynomial at three points in order to figure out what those coefficients are. Because like basically, if I learned at one point that I can, if I just write down the equation, you know, a plus bx plus cx squared, and I say, okay, a plus bx zero plus cx zero squared equals, you know, alpha zero, because, you know, f, I know that f of x zero is alpha zero. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I get three equations that I can sort of you know do my algebra <laughs> and get the three coefficients out. And in general, if I have n coefficients in my polynomial and I get you know n equations by evaluating at n different points, I can get my coefficients out. And so this is sort of the idea. You create a threshold sharing by getting a random polynomial, or just a you can you're just a polynomial. You want it sort of random to like hide stuff correctly. And the idea is like one of the evaluations, maybe, you know, the zeroth coefficient, like you say, you know, f of zero, that's like the secret, where whatever, whatever the height of f is at zero. And then to share that secret, well, I use a sort of low degree polynomial. So the number of coefficients is going to be the threshold, so that as soon as you have that number of shares, you have enough information to reconstruct the polynomial and, th and thus get the secret. And to support, you know, more people than the threshold, I just give more evaluations. So like, let's say my threshold is three, and I want five people in total, what I do is I create a random polynomial that's sort of the secret. And I use a degree of three so that, you know, three shares are enough to reconstruct it. And then I evaluate it n times here and is five. So I evaluate it five times at different points. And so then each person gets one of these evaluations, but they don't know the polynomial. And the idea is that if you get three people together, well, then they'll be able to sort of do this equation thingy and figure out the three coefficients. And if I had four coefficients, instead you need four people, etc. And if I had you know five coefficients, you need all five people. And so that's sort of the idea of what the shares want are going to look like at least with the most common, you know, sharing scheme with polynomials. So one way to set this up is that you just trust somebody to do these shares. You know, I think that's a bit silly, but actually this is sort of realistic in some situations. For example, I talked about like seed phrases. Well, one thing you can do with your seed phrase is obviously you, you know the entire seed phrase and you sort of trust yourself to kind of like forget it because you could always get, you know, wrenched in the head and, and spit it out after torture. But you sort of trust yourself to forget the seed phrase, but you might want to like store some backups with friends, but you don't really trust them to not like use it, the seed phrase. So you might want to have like this, this uh, threshold sharing of your seed phrase, and you trust yourself to sort of create this sharing correctly uh, and to sort of forget the, the seed phrase afterwards. Because obviously any dealer that sort of like, you know, does this random polynomial thing and evaluates it at many points to create the, the shares, they have to forget like the secret. Because if they remember the secret, then well, if they remember the secret, then sort of all bets are off and they can 
just sign stuff because they have the secret. So what you want in practice for threshold signature schemes, though, is a way to generate uh, a sharing of the secret, or rather generate sort of a new secret with the corresponding shares without using a third party. And what you do here is sort of another cryptographic protocol, basically. So I'm probably going to write a blog post about this at some point because I've sort of done some adjustments to how this is usually done. But in essence, you can sort of do this. The basic idea is that sort of each person acts as a dealer. Uh, yeah, so the basic idea is that if you trust people to be honest, what you can do is like you make everybody a dealer and then you sort of add the shares together. So one way of thinking about this is like, in order to generate a polynomial that's shared by everybody and that, but nobody knows, well, each person can generate a polynomial and then sort of implicitly the group polynomial is just adding these together. And each person has like one of the cards of the polynomial, which is just linearly shared. And this makes it so that nobody knows the entire polynomial because you just know like one thing and a sum, which sums up to that polynomial. And then so each person can sort of deal shares according to their own polynomial and then you can sort of just add up all the shares you received from every other person including sort of the share you dealt to yourself and then you end up with the threshold sharing of the of the secret so that's sort of the idea like everybody acts as the dealer and you sort of sum everything up so that no single person learns the secret because like the secret is basically the combination of all the secrets each person has hopefully that makes sense uh what you need to upgrade this to sort of the luscious case is that if I just receive shares, I'm they may not like actually be from this like because because what an honest person is supposed to do is they generate a random polynomial and they sort of evaluate it at, at the right point for each person. Like maybe you know you have person one they get f of one, person two they get f of two, etc. And I need to trust this dude to actually like create a random polynomial and to actually evaluate it correctly. Like maybe he gives the same share to every person that misses up like the threshold stuff. So. To make this sort of maliciously secure, you sort of have to make it so that you can you can verify in some way that a person is actually giving you shares that, that are correct. And you can do this in, in, in at least two ways, <laughs> or probably many ways, but you can do this. And so basically the idea is sort of like each person acts as a dealer and also does it in a way where you can verify that they've dealt you, you know, the correct share. And then you sort of add in all the shares you received so that no single person controls the secret. And that's sort of the idea. And also, like, you also want to make it so, like, that, like, you commit to, like, what share you're dealing before you see any of the other shares so that you don't, like, choose your, the secret you're dealing, like, optimistically based on everything, well, opportunistically, rather, based on everything you've seen, but that's, that's the subtlety. And another thing you might want, which is usually not specified in, like, papers, is, like, a key refresh. So one interesting thing you can do with like threshold secret sharing is that um, you can in some sense sort of like refresh the share. So let's say like one of the shares gets compromised. So like somebody's eavesdropping on your computer and sort of learns the value of one of the shares. So that's like one step closer to being able to forge a signature. So what a key refresh lets you do is without changing the public key shared by the group, you can change each share. So then that share I had before from eavesdropping is, is like completely useless now. So in some sense, like if I have partial compromise, which is not enough to forge a signature, if you get enough to like the quorum, then you're, you're done. So you can just recon reconstitute the signature at that point. 
So that's that. But if I'm like almost there and a refresh happens, I'm sort of back to square one. So that's an interesting thing you might want to do. And the way this ends up work is actually kind of interesting. So so the the way it works is that like, well, at least one easy way to do it is that you do this like distributed key generation, except instead of each person choosing like a random secret and then sort of using the polynomial trick to like distribute shares of it, well, they just choose zero. And so, and then distribute like threshold sharings of zero. And then if everybody adds these together, well, they get sort of a new share of a new sort of public key, but this public key is zero. So if they add this share to the share they had before, it sort of changes it and sort of changes the distribution of shares around, but it doesn't change the public key because you just added zero. So that's like an, a neat trick. You can also like, this is a bit harder to explain, but you can also like change the threshold. <laughs> so one thing you do is that you can like create it. You can like lower the threshold or like increase the threshold. Well, increasing is a bit silly because people can just remember what the shares they had before were. But you could also like add new members to the group while keeping the threshold constant. So if I have like two out of three, I could do like two out of five or something like that. So it's possible to add like new people. And the, the sort of the basic idea is like you deal, you like deal shares that you basically deal like threshold shares of your share. And the people that are new deal threshold shares of zero. And it sort of all works out. Uh, once again, <laughs> hitting up on the limits of the audio format. I guess I should probably like explain like the how to how to increase quorums and how to refresh in a, in a blog post that'd be useful. And then after key generation and refresh, you want to sort of do signatures. And the idea once again is that obviously if enough people come together, you could sort of reconstitute the secret entirely, as I explained a few times. But you don't want to do that. Because then sort of you're you can't really use that key anymore because anybody could sort of sign unilaterally. So instead you sort of run this complicated protocol where your people send messages to each other and do stuff in cryptography, and you end up with a signature. And just that. You don't learn anything else about about the signature. You need to have use your your share to calculate some stuff, but nobody learns information about your share, hopefully. And one interesting thing you often want to do is you want to sort of separate the signature into two big phases. One is like all the stuff you can do before you know the message. And often this is a lot of work and like the bulk of the work. And you sort of want to do this in like advance. And then as soon as you know the message, you do just a little bit of work consuming sort of what you prepared in the prior phase. And the idea behind doing it this way is that I can sort of do a bunch of these pre-signature phases, as you, as you might call it, in advance. And that lowers the amount of latency between learning a message and then getting a signature out. And that's sort of important because if you think of like the, you know, mobile wallet application we had in mind earlier, what you want as a user is like when I decide to make a transaction, like I want that to happen as soon as possible. So if I need to do this big protocol thingy that might be slow, but if sort of, you know, maybe every like five minutes I do this pre-signature thing and prepare it, or like as soon as I don't have any pre-signatures sort of left, I sort of prepare one. And then I can just burn this thing and do this quick, you know, finalization protocol once I learned the, the transaction I want to sign. So that's sort of neat. And then related to that, which is often also on papers, is like all the coordination you need to round this. So like you need to agree to sort of sign a message. So with like the wallet application, you sort of need, you probably like want some other confirmation from the phone, maybe using their enclave that actually that they do want to participate. <laughs> 
in this uh, signature thingy. So like there's a whole like other layer of the application where you decide to trigger this multi-signature protocol. Because you if if you can just trivially get people to participate in threshold signing whatever, I mean that's as good as being one of four signatures. Because they say, hey, I want to sign this message. Uh, are you up? Are you down for signing? And then people say, oh yeah, sure, I'll, I'll sign that, whatever. Like, I mean, that's as good as being able to forge, even if, I, even if I don't know the secret key. So you need some kind of higher level application control over like when you initiate the protocol. Even if the protocol is secure, if you just initiate it willy-nilly, that's, you know, might as well just, you know, leak your, leak your secret. It's unlike, you know, if I don't tell someone what my, you know, private key is for encryption, but anytime they ask me to decrypt something, I say, sure, well, you know, why not? <laughs> it's, they might as well just have the, the key. Like keys are sort of capabilities in some sense. And so if you let people do anything with your key, you, know, you might as well give it to them. Right. I guess, you know, I, I managed to fill an episode just talking about the preliminaries of threshold signatures. And I guess in the next one, we're talking about threshold ECDSA in particular, perhaps for even longer. Uh, there's a bunch of interesting history to, towards uh, how the different protocols of threshold ECDSA involved, because there's quite a few, and maybe we'll even touch upon what I'm doing with them. <laughs> but I guess that's for the next episode. And as for this one, thanks for listening, and I wish you a good day. <laughs>